Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So I'll start off by going back to uh, Sir William himself, or one of his observations. So this image at the top is an image, or it's not an image, it's a, it's a map. And it, William Herschel was a very, very uh, careful observer. Uh, he did a lot of observing of double stars, so tar- stars that appear very close together on the sky, trying to work out if they were actually gravitationally bound, if they were going round each other or whether they just appeared to be close and so on uh, in the night sky. And he did a lot of observations of that. It was one of the ways he ha- was able to discover uh, the planet Uranus uh, and, uh, and lots of other uh, objects as well. This is a map he made of uh, our galaxy. Now, it was known that our galaxy was a big collection of stars, and this is a map that he made in 1785, so probably from around the back of Sainsbury's, um, although it may not have been there at the time. Uh, and you can see the, uh, the stars uh, dotted, dotted around. He's got the shape of our galaxy roughly correct. It's a splodgy disk. We'll give him that. So it's, it's a kind of a flat disk. Our galaxy is indeed a flat disk. Uh, Patrick Moore would have described it as uh, two fried eggs clapped back to back. Uh, He's not quite got the bulge in the middle and so on, but this was 1785, we have to give him that, so 230 years ago. Uh, I I assume, I don't know for sure, that this little collection of dots in the middle is meant to be the sun, um, because you put us near the centre of the galaxy if you didn't know any better, I imagine. And and he's got these these jagged edges, because sometimes, if if anyone's ever looked up at the night sky on a really clear, dark night, and you see the Milky Way stretching overhead, you see patches where it's darker, and there appear to be fewer stars and patches where it's brighter and there appear to be more stars. So he's got that, that idea of, uh, of the shape of our galaxy, and we'll come back to the understanding of, of galaxies and so on later on. Let's jump forward 100 years from there. So from 1785 to 1887, okay, 102 years. Uh, so 1887, and this is one of the first photos taken uh, of the great Andromeda Nebula, as it was called then. It was by a Welshman, Isaac Roberts, and this is one of the first photos that actually showed structure in the Andromeda galaxy. Well, we now know it as a galaxy, but the Andromeda Nebula, as it was called back then. It was known that this was made of stars. They could see, if you used a powerful enough telescope, you could see individual stars. And it was known that this, this had a, a vaguely spiral shape. But because we didn't really understand the shape of our galaxy, it wasn't really known whether this was part of our galaxy or whether this was beyond our galaxy. So one of the ways of doing that is to try and measure the distance, to say, well, how far away is this? And it was a few uh, years later, so in the 1920s, about 1925, that this chap here, Edwin Hubble, uh, not using this telescope as it happens, but using a different telescope, uh, measured the distance uh, to this galaxy. He used a star that I think is up in this corner. I can't remember exactly which one. It goes by the catchy name of V1. It's a particular type of variable star. By measuring the properties of that star and how it varied in brightness, he could measure its distance, or estimate its distance. Now, that tells you, obviously, how far away it is. You have to understand how big our galaxy is. And there were various debates at the time about how big our galaxy was. It could have been a few tens of thousands of light years across. It could have been uh, a few hundred thousand light years across. The distance Edwin Hubble measured to this star was a million light years, which is much, much bigger than that. Now, he was wrong by about a factor of two and a half, because it turns out there are two types of this particular kind of variable star. We'll let him off, because that wasn't known at the time. But what he did prove was that this galaxy, Andromeda galaxy, was way, way, way beyond anything 
uh, in our no novel conceived of in our galaxy. So that was 1925, right? So 90 years ago that we got the first observational proof that there were galaxies or island universes, as they were, as they were sometimes termed, beyond our own Milky Way. 90 years, right? Think how how greatly our universe, or our knowledge of the universe, has expanded in just 90 years. That's quite astonishing. And all thanks to uh, observations such as this. But we can also go back to William Herschel. Let's go, go back in time, because he did something else. He expanded our horizons, if you like, in a slightly different way. This is a, obviously not a photo, uh, this is a drawing, a painting, of uh, William Herschel sitting in his observatory in the year 1800 or thereabouts, and he's doing an experiment. He's passing sunlight through a, a prism, and it's coming down onto the, his workbench in front of him. And he's testing a hypothesis that's been put to him. The hypothesis that was made was that blue light carries more energy, is warmer than red light. That if you put a thermometer in the blue light, it will heat up more than a thermometer that's placed in the red light. And you can actually do this experiment. Some of you may have even tried it in school or university. You can actually do this. You have to be careful about breezes, because a slight breeze will cool it down. But indeed, if you carefully control the environments, you paint the, paint the bulbs of your thermometers black and put them in the blue light compared to the red light, providing it's a bright light, you need like a sun or very, very bright bright light to, to make it, you can measure the change in temperature of you know, a, a few degrees, small change. What William Herschel found, he proved that hypothesis that blue light does indeed carry more energy than red light, heats things up more. That's why if you get a, the, well, the same reason why if you, if you start a, a fire and you have the coals glowing, they'll start off black, then they get warm enough, maybe a thousand degrees say, and they'll start glowing red. They get warmer, they get orange, they get warmer still, they go yellow, they get hotter and hotter and they eventually glow white because they've got all the colours in the rainbow in the, in the light coming out. If you've got them hot enough still, and please don't try this at home, uh, it would get blue hot. That would be like, 10,000 degrees or something, so really don't try it at home. I don't think you could, but don't. Uh, then it would get blue hot. And he established that this blue light was hotter, if you like, than the red light. He did something else as well, though, because if he pushed his thermometers out beyond the red part of the spectrum, what he discovered is that they were still heating up. So there was some form of... of energy coming through this prism and hitting his thermometers, even though he couldn't see anything. He discovered some sort of invisible light, invisible radiation that was heating up those thermometers. We now call it infrared light. And it's part of a, a whole spectrum. A couple of years later, ultraviolet light was discovered. That's what gives you some tans and so on. Uh, then we also later on discovered radio waves and x-rays and gamma rays and so on. We now have this full suite of the electromagnetic spectrum. Here it is in its, in its glory. It's hard to kind of you can't really use colours because we only have colours for the, the visible part. So here's visible light. And if you go to shorter wavelengths, you get ultraviolet, X-ray and gamma ray. And if you go to these longer wavelengths, you get infrared, submillimeter, microwave and radio. If you did physics at school, you may well have learnt those in school, those sort of seven classic regimes of the spectrum. There's a couple that you won't have learnt, so submillimeter. And we split infrared into three, typically, near-infrared, mid-infrared and far-infrared, just referring to how close or far from visible light they are. And the reason for that is the properties that we're looking at when you study all these different kinds of light, all these different kinds of electromagnetic uh, radiation. So I mentioned that blue light was hotter than red light. We can give all light a characteristic temperature. Objects of that temperature will typically emit light of that, that colour, that wavelength. So visible objects that are emitting light, such as the sun, are typically uh, a few thousand degrees, five or six thousand degrees is the temperature of the surface of the sun. If you go to longer wavelengths, you're looking at colder stuff. So by the time you get out to these far infrared and submillimeter wavelengths, 
you're looking at things that are much, much colder. You're looking at things that, instead of being several thousand degrees, are just tens of degrees above absolute zero. Absolute zero being the coldest you can possibly get, minus 273 degrees C. Right, so we're looking at things that are, say, minus 250 degrees C. So pretty cold by our day-to-day -day standards. If you go longer still, you go even colder. If you go to shorter wavelengths, like this way, you get even hotter, and you get things that are hundreds of thousands or millions of, uh, of degrees uh, in temperature. So as you go to different wavelengths, you're looking at different temperature regimes. And we're looking at things of different temperatures. The Herschel Space Observatory, or I'll explain why shortly, uh, was observing this part of the spectrum. So the far infrared and the submillimeter part of the spectrum. Uh, that's, uh, that's what it observed. It's looking at things that are typically tens to maybe hundreds of degrees above absolute zero. So we're looking at temperatures, as I said, of, say, 50 to a couple of hundred, sorry, minus 250 uh, to, um, I don't know, minus... 150, minus 200 degrees C, uh, typically. So that's what Herschel's uh, observing. Now, what happens when you look at it in the sky? There aren't many graphs in this talk, so bear with me. Uh, this is, if you took the whole sky and smoothed it out, so you just smooth it out and say, right, well, how bright is the sky at different wavelengths of light, different colours? So we see this bump here from starlight. There are some stars like our sun, which emit in the visible part of the spectrum. You get a few really hot stars that emit at shorter wavelengths in the ultraviolet. And you get a few, a lot of colder stars that emit uh, in the, the infrared, the near infrared, and possibly the mid infrared uh, out here. And as you go to longer wavelengths, remember these cooler temperatures, you get to the, the light emitted by interstellar dust. These are tiny grains of stuff. I have a a photo of one. There's, there's the band that Herschel is observing. It's designed prim primarily to look at this interstellar dust. Again, I'll explain why shortly. Uh, here's a typical grain of interstellar dust, one captured by NASA, I believe. This is typically 10 or a few tens or hundreds of microns across, sometimes smaller. You could almost think of them as the size of like small smoke, part smoke particles. They're not smoke particles, but they're typically made of uh, silicates and carbonates and so on. Um, relatively simple. Uh, simple molecules out there. So these are very, very small. But what they're doing is they're absorbing the light from the stars. And then they're warming up slightly and re-emitting it in this part of the spectrum. So they're absorbing the starlight and re-emitting it at these slightly colder, slightly longer wavelengths because they're, they're at slightly lower temperatures. So what happens when we go and look out at the sky? Well, a, a spoiler for a couple of Herschel observations. Here is a, an observation of the night sky uh, in the in visible light, so light we see with our eyes, so this is from an optical telescope, showing stars. This is a patch of sky in the constellation of Taurus, and you can see lots of stars, some bright stars, some faint stars, and then these dark, wispy bits drifting across the image. Those are clouds of interstellar dust. Those are clouds that are blocking out the light from behind. And when you look at it in visible light, you look at it and you say, well, there's clearly a lot of dust here because it's blocking out all the light from behind. And there's clearly a lot of dust here because it's blocking out all the light from behind. But it's like seeing a silhouette of a person up on a hill. All you can tell is they're there. You can't tell what colour clothes they're wearing or anything. Well, they're wearing clothes in principle. But uh, uh, in this dust, uh, you can see that it's blocking out the light uh, from my silhouetted, essentially. When you look at it in this far infrared light, you're looking at the light it glows with. And instead, it looks like that. And suddenly, you can see a lot more detail. You can start to see that this bit here is much brighter. This bit is not as bright. This bit's brighter again. What that's telling us is the brighter bits, there's more stuff there emitting light. We're actually seeing all the light emitted by all the dust in that direction. So we're seeing sort of an in, all the light from all the, all the dust in, this, in that direction, in that, in that clump. But it's probably all in one place. Now, this tells us that 
The dust here is denser, there's a denser clump. There are subtle temperature variations. Now, the colour scheme here, and in pretty much all the images I'll show you, is the same colour scheme that I discussed earlier. So blue, remember I said Herschel, William Herschel discovered that blue light was warmer than red light. In these images, bluer stuff, so this little clump here that's a little whitey bluey bit, and this bit, there's a whitey blue bit there and a whitey blue bit here, they're all slightly warmer, and these reddy, browny, orangey, murky bits are cooler. So the cooler bits are maybe tens of degrees, maybe 20 degrees above absolute zero, and the warmer bits maybe 50, 100 degrees above absolute zero. So they're slightly warmer. So we can start to tell much more about it. The brightness tells us the density, tells us how much dust there is, and the colour tells us the temperature of the dust, far more than if we just had a silhouette. And we can go all pretty, and we can put them both together and make a pretty, pretty composite image. So there we go. So this is what happens when you look in the fire infrared. This is the, what you gain from it. Now there's a problem, and that's our own Earth's atmosphere. So this is how opaque our atmosphere is when you want to look at different types of light. So we have that scale early, we've got the visible light here, we've got ultraviolet and an X-ray here. This is why we don't all get sunburn immediately when we step outside. Uh, and we go to radio waves down this end. This is, this is how radio telescopes can see during the day, essentially, because uh, the atmosphere is transparent at radio waves. But in the middle, it's basically opaque. And that's largely because, at this part of the spectrum anyway, largely because of water vapour in our atmosphere. Water vapour, particles of water vapour, molecules of water vapour, absorb these kind of wavelengths of light. There are little notches where if you go to a very high mountain, maybe the Atacama Desert in Chile or uh, the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii and places in the Pyrenees and the Alps and so on, you can observe tiny little narrow windows in there that you can, you can just see through at particular wavelengths. But to observe a lot of it, you have to get above the atmosphere. Now, there's three ways of getting above the atmosphere, in principle. Uh, one is, uh, well, apart from going on a high mountain, one is you stick it in a plane. So there are experiments, there's one called Sophia, where it takes a telescope and cuts a hole in the side of a Boeing 747 and doesn't quite stick a telescope out of it, but the telescope looks through that hole uh, to look out. You're above your 30,000 feet or whatever, about 10 kilometres altitude. You're above most of the atmosphere, certainly above most of the, well, all the high mountains, and you can see out. Into, into space. That can then take off, it can land, it can do whatever it likes. You could also take your experiment and dangle it from a balloon. So there are experiments that take things much like Herschel and dangle them from very high altitude balloons. So you may remember that a, a few, well, 2012, I guess, Felix Baumgartner was the, the first person to break the sound barrier. He's been uh, surpassed now, I believe. But uh, he was the first person to break the sound barrier by jumping from a very high altitude balloon, about 120,000 feet, about 40 kilometers altitude, and then plummeting. Those same balloons launch experiments up to very high altitudes. Uh, they don't generally break the sound barrier when they come down. Uh, and, and you can do that as well. That gets you to 40 kilometers altitude. Uh, the disadvantage is they last for a couple of weeks and then they, they come down again and they generally land with a bump, a big bump, and you have to rebuild them again. Or you can send it into space. So that's what, happens to, what happened to the Herschel Space Observatory. It got launched into space. The plans for it started in about the mid-1980s, really, and serious planning began, began the late 1990s, and building started early 2000s. It's a very, very long project to get these things uh, working. And it didn't just go into space. If you go into space, you imagine the Hubble Space Telescope, probably the most famous telescope uh, on or just off the Earth. It's about 400, 600 kilometers altitude above the surface of the Earth. The Earth is 13,000 kilometers in diameter. That's not very much. Uh, so if you're in the Hubble Space Telescope and you're looking out at, at space, uh, half the sky is taken up by the Earth in one direction. You also have the problem that you're going around the Earth every 90 minutes, so you're going to sunlight into shadow, into sunlight into shadow every 90 minutes in principle. 
as you control your orbit very carefully. Uh, you also have the, uh, the issue that, remember Herschel is going to be looking at this very, very cold stuff. It has to be very cold as well. There's a nice big radiator next to you when you're just 600 kilometers away from the Earth. It's called the Earth. And it radiates lots of heat in these wavelengths. You need to get away from that as well. So Herschel went to a point called the, the second Lagrangian point, L2 to its friends. It's a, about a million miles, one and a half million kilometers away in the opposite direction to the sun. It's a gravitational sweet spot. So if you go further away from the sun, Newton's laws of gravity tell us you should orbit the sun slightly more slowly. So it'll take just over a year to go around and slowly you get out of sync with the Earth. But when you're sitting here, you don't just have the pull from the sun. You also have a little bit of extra pull because the Earth is in the same direction. And the extra little pull is just enough to speed you up so you go around the sun in, in exactly one year. And so if you sit at this point, you stay in sync with the Earth. The Earth and the Sun are both in one direction. So whatever you do, don't look that way. You can look any other way you like, just not that way. They're both behind you. Uh, and actually what Herschel does is it does a little loop around that point. Uh, so here's the Sun, the Earth, the Moon going around it. It's about four times as far away from the Moon as the Earth, as from the Earth as the Moon is. And doing this, this loop around that point, that's where it, where it went. So here's a picture of, picture of Herschel. It's the largest single solid mirror ever launched into space. A couple of qualifiers there, of course. There are larger mirrors that have been launched. Uh, they tend to be uh, radio telescopes, so they're made of a metal mesh rather than solid metal. And they also tend to unfurl when we're in orbit. There have been 8 and 10 meter telescopes. We don't have uh, rockets big enough to launch 8 or 10 meter wide things. So they're made of me metal mesh, and they unfurl in orbit, and both of those are cheating. So Herschel is the, the big largest single solid mirror. It's certainly the largest infrared telescope ever launched into space. And I think I have a, uh, a video of a build-up coming up shortly. It's three and a half meter, meters across, the main mirror. So it's pretty big. That's um, nearly twice as big as there was. One and a half times the size of the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and it's got this big tank of uh, liquid helium below it, which I'll, I'll talk to in a second. Uh, now, here's a photo of it in the lab. So here's that three and a half meter mirror with being polished nicely so we can see it. Uh, and here's Herschel... Uh, in all its glory, uh, standing up with its main mirror, and what I assume is an average-sized person at the bottom. Um, I think there's a bit of perspective going on there. Uh, so uh, we have an average-sized person there for scale. And I think uh, there's a photo. If you took the lid off Herschel, here's the, the scientific instruments. I have a better visualization of that here. So if you wanted to build a space observatory, this is how to build a space observatory, not in 15 years, but in one minute. Uh, you build an optical bench and you put some instruments on top. Here's the instrument called Spire. We led, the UK led that, in fact Cardiff led that, built in Rutherford Appleton Labs uh, near Oxford. So all of these instruments, these three instruments, Spire, PAX and HiFi, those are acronyms, are all about yay big. Uh, you stick them in there. Now I said they were observing very cold stuff, they had to be kept very cold themselves. So you stick below them about 2,000 litres of liquid helium. That keeps them down to about 2 degrees above absolute zero. Remember that's minus 271 degrees C. And you pump all that helium around and you cool down all the instruments that are at the top. And then you wrap them in a can as well to keep them safe. You put a few more layers of shielding around them so nothing gets too warm. Uh, you put more piping around there. Uh, and then eventually you, you wrap the whole thing in a big vacuum tank. Obviously, space is a vacuum, but you're going to build it on Earth, uh, which is a vacuum is hard. As that keeps everything cool, that helium vents into space, so it does eventually run out. You stick a big mirror on top. The communications and th uh, thrusters and so on go at the bottom in what's called the service module, and that gets uh, packed in. You put a bit more pipe work and control around there. You want to shield it from the sun, so you better build a nice big sun shield uh, to protect it. 
And then on the back of it, it's going to be solar powered, so that sun shield points towards the sun, so what better place to put your solar panels? Stick them on the back of the sun shield. And there we have it, one space telescope in one minute flat. Uh, that was easy, what so hard? Uh, the advantages of, uh, uh, yeah, computer, CGI. Um, so there we have it. And then how do you get it into space? Well, you stick it on a plane, of course. Uh, I mentioned that SPY, the instrument SPY, was built in the UK uh, with an international collaboration, but led by the UK. Uh, it was then taken to the rest of Herschel, which was assembled in the Netherlands, uh, the European Space Agency's technology facility, not far out of Amsterdam. Uh, so it gets stick, stuck on a plane. This is the nose of the plane, lifted up to let it on. It's the only plane, I think, where they put the advertising on the bottom. Uh, and then that flies uh, to French Guiana. That's an internal flight, French Guiana, part of France. Uh, so it really is an internal flight, about a 4,000-mile internal flight or something. Um, uh, and... Yeah, it flies there, but then you have to get it uh, into orbit. Planes don't generally go into orbit. Uh, and here we have it. Here is the Ariane 5 rocket. So the Ariane 5 is Europe's largest, most powerful rocket. Herschel and Planck. Uh, Planck was a satellite that was launched alongside it. I will keep mentioning it. I don't have time to talk about it, so apologies if I, if I rush through anything. But Herschel and Planck are sitting just in the top there. And here you can see there, here's a, here's a photo. And there's Herschel. Planck is in this uh, very expensive packing case. Uh, sitting there to protect it. Uh, the rest of this thing is fuel. It has solid rocket boosters, not unlike the space shuttle used to have when that was flying, uh, and it has a liquid-fueled rocket, so most of this is a liquid hydrogen and liquid, ox liquid oxygen uh, in there as well. But of course, with every good launch, you get a launch video. So here we have it sitting on the launch pad. I was, this wasn't my footage. I wasn't there, don't worry. I was about seven miles away at the time. Uh, a big bunch of us watching the launch. Part of France. Six, six, five. 4, 3, 2, 1, top. I don't know what top means. Um, go. No, I can't mean go. But. So here we go. Here's, a, here's the launch. So we have, uh, we have liftoff. Um, a perfect launch. What's really odd is in a second you'll hear it. Sound takes a little while to travel. So what's really odd is the rocket's up there in the sky and you hear the rush from down there where it took off. Uh, so it, it went through the clouds. It was a pretty much perfect launch. In fact, so perfect they got to cancel one of the orbital control manoeuvres. The solid rocket boosters fall off. Unlike the space shuttles, they, did, they don't get recovered. There's no European Navy to go and recover them. Um, possibly topical at the moment, I suppose. Um, there's a, uh, uh, a, uh, the fairing gets lifted on when it gets out of the atmosphere. Uh, and then Herschel's left going uh, along there. Explosive bolts let Herschel go on its merry way. Planck is in there, it's about to go on its journey as well. And here we go, it takes about six weeks to do this loop away from the Earth and the Moon and do a, uh, a loop around the, uh, uh, this L2 point. And it sat there for the uh, best part of four years. So that was the 14th of May 2009 when it launched. That big vat of liquid helium I mentioned, 2,000 litres, gradually boiled off and it operated till the, the 29th of April 2013. So almost made its fourth birthday, longer than expected. You don't just stay here for free. You have to do little orbital uh, maintenance maneuvers every now and again. Uh, and, and it lasted long enough that they almost had to think about doing an extra one at the end because it, it refused to run out. It's hard to measure the, the volume of liquid helium left. So there we have it. There's Herschel. And what did it do? Well, when it was just doing its commissioning phase, it decided to take some pictures. This is not a Herschel picture. This is a picture 
uh, of one of amateur astronomers' favourite objects, the Whirlpool Galaxy, Messier 51. It's an interacting galaxy. You can see spiral arms. You can see a little dwarf galaxy up the top that it's interacting with. So pay attention to those spiral arms. These dark bits here, these are that dust getting in the way. So I want to draw your attention to maybe this one here. Sort of comes round and goes kink and then goes up again. And there's a few others, and it obviously goes up there. Well, what does Herschel see? This was literally, the, I think it was a press event with the Director General of the European Space Agency coming to it. So the organisers said, can you just take, just take a picture? Open the flap and take a picture. And they did. And they got that with the PAX instrument. So this was, uh, um, well, I would say more luck than judgment. I'm sure there's a lot of judgment went into it. Uh, and you can see that spiral arm I mentioned that comes round here and goes kink. It comes round here and goes kink as well. So you can see that there. So we're tracing this dark dust, remember, silhouetted against the background light. We're seeing the light it emit, uh, emits on its own. Blue stuff, slightly warmer, that's where stars have formed and heated up the dust. Red stuff is cooler, and that's the cooler dust that's dotted uh, around. So that was one of the first uh, early images of Herschel. I then did a lot more. I'll show you a quick movie of all of Herschel's observations. Again, this is how to operate a telescope not in four years, but in one minute. So this was made by the European Space Agency. For reference, this is the whole sky, just like you see an atlas of the world flattened out onto a page. You can see an atlas of the whole sky flattened out onto a, onto a page. Here's something for those, those of you who know your astronomy, you recognize Andromeda and Pegasus, you recognize the names at least. Uh, this blue line is the, uh, we call the ecliptic plane. Uh, so that's where the, the planets will appear to go from Herschel's point of view. And if you look where it says OD2, that's operational day two. That's day two of the mission. So it launched two days ago. Still on, on route at the moment. And I will play the movie of where it observed uh, in the sky. You'll see all the planets whiz round, because this, this is four years in one minute. So as you go, there's even music. Uh, so here we go. You can see the sun coming around here. And it starts observing. So it observes some big patches of sky and lots of little observations all over the place. So end of 2010 now. This is the plane of our galaxy. Trying to map out the plane of our galaxy. These large areas here. There we go. That was easy. Again, what's so hard? Uh, so here we have large areas of sky observed well away from the plane of our galaxy. So Herschel's done a lot of very, very big projects, but lots of very targeted observations. And in the end, it observed um, well over 10% of the sky uh, in, its, in its four years, or three and a half years of science operations. So that was, uh, that was what it did. If you want to split up the observations into categories, it lo did lots of looking at star formation. That dust is very key to star formation. I'll explain that shortly. Uh, and then lots of stuff about galaxies and cosmology, looking at the, the universe and its evolution, and then a little bit about stars themselves and some stuff in our own solar system. I'll talk about a few bits of these results uh, in the last part of the talk. Uh, here's what you look like. I showed that, this, this image again, the, the whole sky flattened out onto a plane. This is, a, this is something you can see. Uh, if you could see the whole sky, obviously we have half the Earth in the way. Uh, we have the whole Earth in the way, covering half the sky and a building above us, so ignore that. Um, if, you, if you could have the whole sky, this is real observations from a telescope, uh, and we have our galaxy across the middle. 
these dark dust lanes that are blocking out that light behind. Remember, it's silhouetted, blocking out the light behind. If you look up and down out of the plane of that, that disk, uh, then there's not too much to see. Um, some of the astronomers' favourite constellations are there. So we have uh, Orion here with his, his belt of three stars and his sword hanging down. Uh, we have the, the plough, so part of Ursa Major, just up here, just a bit distorted, but there's his tail and there's the body. Uh, we have Leo is a bit distorted up here. Uh, the large and small Magellanic clouds, little satellite galaxies that are orbiting our own. And that Andromeda galaxy that the first distance measurements were done on is this little dash down here. That's the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, and here's, here's the centre of our galaxy with that bulge in the middle. What happens when you look at it in the fine infrared? The image I will show now is not a Herschel image. It was, a, it was by that other satellite, Planck, that I mentioned, the sister mission, if you like, doing different stuff. Uh, but it did observe the whole sky at similar kind of wavelengths. And this is what you see. Right, so this is what Planck sees if it looks at the whole sky. Odd colour scheme. The blue stuff is all the, the dust that Herschel's going to look at, so let's focus on that. You can see it's a, this line of our galaxy. You can see the dust emitting. You can see patches where there's a lot more of it. And then up and down, you see gaps where you can see through to the distant universe. Uh, and you can see these sweeping bits of what we call galactic cirrus. So like cirrus clouds, clouds of interstellar dust instead. You can still see the large and small Magellanic clouds. Orion is over here. He's, he's, he's got now got a head and a body. He's turned from a hunter into a snowman. Uh, again, topical for the time of year, maybe. Uh, and then here's the uh, Andromeda galaxies down there uh, as well. So that's what the sky looks like. In terms of what Herschel observed, I showed you that animation, but here's what Herschel saw uh, over the sky. A bit distorted at the top and bottom, uh, but you can see uh, all, the, uh, all the observations that it made, as I say, about 10% or so of the sky. Uh, Here's what Herschel can do. So this is an image by the, the, the previous best infrared satellite, if you like, Spitzer. Still going, not observing these wavelengths because its coolant ran out uh, years ago. Um, Spitzer's a very, very, very good satellite. This is not meant to denigrate Spitzer. Its mirror was one-fifth the size of Herschel's uh, mirror, and its instruments were, were not as advanced uh, because it was launched so far, about, you know, um, getting on for 10 years beforehand. So here's what Spitzer sees, the galaxy M74, which, if I recall, is about 30 million light years away. Uh, and this is what Herschel sees, right, the spiral instrument on Herschel. And you can start to see, ah, you can now see spiral arms. And you can see some sort of uh, static in the, in the background, some noise in the background. Uh, well, let's look at all three colours that the spiral instrument takes. Three different wavelengths of light, don't necessarily worry about the numbers. But these are all the same galaxy, all with different detectors taken exactly at the same time, showing this galaxy here, 30 million light years away, long way away. Uh, and there's this static in the background, which you know, looks like it's annoying. I mean, couldn't we have cleaned up the detectors? Well, let's sort of, there's a bright blob there and there and there and there. In here, there's a bright blob there, 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 there. And there's a bright blob there, 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 there. The same objects, the same blobs are there in every image. So this is not just random noise. These are real objects. So what we're seeing here is this galaxy Messier 74, uh, along with hundreds of distant galaxies. Every single one of those little blobs in the background, or pretty much every single one that you can see, you know, these blobs here, are distant galaxies billions of light years away. So an immense depth of field that you can see in, uh, in just one image. And we're seeing the dust here. We're seeing the dust emitted, or the light emitted by the dust in the nearby and the distant galaxies. We can do similar things in our galaxy as well. So here is a region of the sky called the Polaris Flare. So this is near the star Polaris, the North Star. Um, uh, for those of you who've seen it, I'm sure you recognise it. It's there. Uh, I'm sure that's how it normally looks. Uh, here is a, a flare, a, a cloud of gas and dust that's looping up uh, over the, uh, through, the, through the galaxy. 
The colours look that they're a bit washed out. They're a bit grey-browny. They're all about the same colour. That actually tells us the temperature here is about the same. There's no great extremes of temperature. There's nothing much going on here in terms of star formation. But if you look in this top right corner, if I zoom in on that in a grayscale, uh, you can see one patch of that, uh, of light there, and then you zoom in, on, zoom in on it, and you can see all these distant blobs. Remember, one of the difficulties of measuring whether the Andromeda galaxy was in our galaxy or beyond was because we needed to measure its distance, and that's very hard. The same is true in the infrared. It's no, in fact, it's, if anything, it's harder. Uh, these blobs here, are they distant galaxies, or are they blobs and clumps of dust in our own galaxy? Who knows? Right? With a lot of them, you have to do a lot more detailed study uh, to find out. It's one of the, the, the blessings and the curses of doing this kind of astronomy, that you get to see this, this depth of field with these immense distances, but it's hard to work out exactly what's going on. But you can see our galaxy, this galactic Cirrus, and these distant galaxies uh, as well. So here's a, here's a patch of sky in the Southern Cross, uh, and you can see in the visible light, you see stars. And in the infrared, you see this kind of thing. So remember, blue stuff, warm, red stuff, cool. So this stuff here is being heated by a cluster of stars, probably in this region here, heating up this material over there, whereas you see the red filaments. And if you look down here, there's little, almost like fairy lights on a chain, little clumps of dust that are collapsing. Now, what happens when a star forms? You get a cloud of dust, and gravity is pulling everything downwards. As it slowly cools, that dust collapses down and down and down. And eventually, the stuff in the centre becomes hot enough that it supports itself by its own energy is pushing outwards and counteracting the gravity. And you get this clump of stuff, a protostar, in the centre that's quite warm. And you get a clump of other stuff around it as well, lots of other dust around it as well. And what we're seeing here is that clump of cold dust around a protostar. It will take uh, 100,000, a million years or so, so blink of an eye in astronomical, stand in astronomical terms, for this to eventually form a star, a nuclear fusion to start right in the core. But we're seeing the very earliest stages of star formation here. You don't see anything like that in this image here, because it's all shielded by a cloud of, uh, cloud of dust. So here's another region in Aquila, and you can see something similar. You can see these blue regions heated by existing stars, and then these, these clumps, uh, these little, little dots of star formation, protostars, are dotted around the image. And they tend to form on sort of filaments, like this one down here. You tend to get lines of them threading through the galaxy. So very, much, very intricate detail. Now, why is this so special? Well, let, let's think about, I mentioned a star forms, and you end up this, this self-supported thing in the centre with its energy outwards counteracting gravity pushing inwards. Well, eventually the fusion starts, the star lights up. It pushes out. This is a, a simulation of my colleagues in Cardiff a few, a few years ago of what happens when, it light, when the star lights up. It kicks out a lot of ultraviolet light. That pushes away all the material around it. And that creates this cavity. Now, what happens is that if you get a star that is about 10 times the mass of our sun, 10 to 20 times the mass of our sun, this turning on of the star and the nuclear fusion starting, all the radiation that's giving out, stops everything else collapsing inwards. It pushes away all the material around it. So you stop the formation of stars. So in theory, you shouldn't be able to form stars that are more than 10 or 20 times the mass of our sun, except we know there are stars out there that are more than that mass. And we know there are stars much, much more than that mass. So how on earth did they form? Well, you end up with images like this. This is one of the early Herschel images showing a, a bubble in space being blown by a star that's right 
in the centre. You can't see the star in this image. You can see the bubble it's blowing. It's pushing that material up against all the surrounding dust. So its density is increasing as it's pushed up, so it appears a bit brighter. And it's getting warmed up by that starlight as well. So this star's about 20 times the mass of the sun. But down here, there's this bright white blob. That's a star that has all this material being pushed that way against all this material here. So it's not just forming in isolation. And you end up being able to form much more massive stars because you've got this extra force of this, this bubble pushing outwards, letting you push more material onto it. This star here is already, the protostar is already about 10 times the mass of our sun and surrounded by a clump that's about 2,000 times the mass of our sun. Now, it won't collect all of that. It will end up maybe a, a hundred times the mass of our sun or something. We don't understand star formation of these very high mass stars well enough to know exactly what will happen. But this is the formation of what could be one of the largest stars in our galaxy. A lot of research Herschel has done, observations with, with Herschel images, that have shown the formation of these very high mass stars. Now, a lot of you may have seen this, this image, one of the most iconic images in, in astronomy, the, the pillars of creation. Three pillars, several light years long. This is a visible light image by the Hubble Space Telescope. You can see the, the gas actually glowing around the edge. The gas is being heated. And the gas is being heated by a cluster of stars because this isn't just three pillars of dust sitting on their own. It's part of a larger nebula, part of the Eagle uh, Nebula, M16. This is a cluster of stars. Uh, it's about three million years old, so again, pretty young by astronomical standards. And here are those, those pillars. They're heating up this dust, and they're eroding away. They're pushing out this light, and they're eroding this cavity in this nebula. And what's going on at the top? There's lots of black stuff silhouetting the background information. Well, guess what? When you look at it in the infrared, it's not black anymore. Uh, you see this instead. So you start to see the structure. Now, the 3D picture is hard to pick out because, as I said, you can't measure distance very well, which bits are in front, which bits are not. There's, uh, there's some research. Someone who gave a talk in Cardiff a few weeks ago was saying that the, the human eye sees blue stuff as hazy and in the distance. So the eye tends to imagine that this stuff is in the background and the red stuff is in the foreground. Not necessarily true. That might be your eyes deceiving you. But you can start to see a lot more, because those red clumps up the top left, you couldn't see them at all, those evidence of stars forming uh, in, the vis in the visible. So you're seeing a lot more uh, information. Uh, and here's one of my, one of my favorite regions, mainly because it's called Cygnus X, which sounds cool. Uh, so here we have uh, a regional sky in the constellation of Cygnus. Again, some blue stuff heated up by existing stars. You end up with kidney bean cavities blown by clusters, and these clusters around here, the diamond ring. Uh, feature. Um, and let's zoom on this region here, which goes by the catchy name of DR21, because astronomers shouldn't be allowed to name anything. Uh, named after two astronomers whose initials were D and R, and I can't remember what their original names were. That's, that's what uh, Legacy gives you. Uh, so here we go. Here's, uh, here's that, that zoom in on the feature. There's, there's something like 80 clumps of star formation along this region. You can see these subfilaments threading inwards, and the material is flowing into this general feature right in the center. Uh, and Studies, that, so Herschel observed this. Other telescopes from the ground with more, higher resolution, uh, looking in more detail, showed that the material appears to flow along here. Also seen that it, these intersections of filaments, where you see these, these columns, these tubes of dust all intersecting, that's where we tend to form the most massive clusters of stars. So this is where the most massive groups of stars form uh, in our galaxy. So Herschel's been able to highlight where the most massive stars in our galaxies are probably forming. And here's one, one final region of, of star formation I'll show you. This, this region here that, that Herschel saw, which was known of before. Here's a, here it is, Spitzer Dark Cloud 335. Catchy name again. Um, you can see in the, in the Spitzer image in the near infrared, you can see this, this black region around it. There's something shadowing. There's some, something silhouetted. Well, Herschel saw, yes, there's something there. It's a splodge. But the resolution isn't quite good enough to see it in detail. 
but knows there's a lot of stuff there, and you look at it with ground-based telescopes and see that, in fact, there's protostars that have got about 500 times the mass of their sun collecting in them. So incredibly massive clumps of dust forming stars right now, uh, all being led by, uh, uh, being identified by Herschel initially and then followed up by other telescopes. So where does this dust come from? Well, here's, a, here's an infrared image of one of the most famous stars in the sky, so Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, however you want to pronounce it, blowing out uh, um, puffs of gas and dust as it enters the end of its life. It's blown out these shells. We can measure how fast they're moving and say these were several hundred thousand years ago. These were emitted. And this stuff here was about 30,000 years ago or thereabouts. Something happened that it started kicking out a lot more material. Betelgeuse is nearing the end of its life. Uh, so in the next, I don't know, million years or thereabouts, so watch this space, uh, Betelgeuse will go supernova and will distribute its material in the surrounding region. Um, it was thought that these were one of the possible uh, ways that we created all this dust, all this cosmic dust. You end up with all the molecules that stars have formed, all the chemicals they've formed, collecting together in their outer layers and forming molecules out in space that then get distributed. But you can't create all the dust we see with just those stars. You need another source. And this is another such source. This is the Crab Nebula. This is the remnant of a star that exploded about 1,000 years ago. The explosion was seen by Chinese and Arabic astronomers. Uh, and this is what we see now, the remnants of that star, a massive star that reached the end of its life and well, actually first imploded, then exploded, an enormous explosion. You can see, again, filaments of dust. And this orange stuff here, that tells us there's relatively cool dust in the center of that supernova remnant, the remnant of this dead star, that has, was formed in the explosion. So this explosion of this massive star sent stuff flying, but also created this dust. The explosion led to the creation of these particles of dust. And in fact, we think supernovae like this, of these massive stars, are one of the primary sources of dust in the universe. That's where a lot of it came from. When you get a lot of stars forming, you get a lot of supernovae, you get a lot of dust. So you can trace all that dust, you can trace the star formation. You can look at it in more detail. All of Herschel's instruments carried on board spectrometers. So they split the light into its wavelengths, a bit like splitting it into a rainbow, and look at where it's bright and where it's dark. And you can see individual wavelengths that are bright and dark, these, these spikes here at different, different wavelengths. The height of the spike tells you how bright it is. And comparing it with lab measurements, you can identify different compounds. So here's a, here's a patch of the Orion Nebula. And for those at the back who can't read it, we've got a lovely sounding compounds, so methanol. Uh, hydrogen sulfide, uh, sulfur dioxide, some dimethyl ether, uh, formaldehyde, yum, a bit of de deuterium cyanide, uh, just in case you're thirsty, uh, some water to wash it down with, some sulfur dioxide, aquila nitrile, methanol, water, all these basic, uh, what we call organic chemicals, not organic, organic because they are life, but because they're one of the building blocks of life. So these kind of molecules, these hydrogen, involve hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, are one of the bases, uh, the, one, the, the, a key component of life as we know it, certainly life as we understand. And they're formed in nebulae like this, where stars are currently formed. So if there are planets forming around these stars, then these end up on those planets, and they lead, we think, to, or they're, they're one of the key components in the formation of, uh, of life. Who knows? That's huge speculation. Um, so don't take this away that there is life in the Orion Nebula because we're going to be fired or something. Um, but that's the, that's the kind of thing we can see with Herschel. And we can go further afield. Here's the Andromeda Galaxy, just to finish off going uh, back out to, a, to where we started and then beyond. So here's the Andromeda Galaxy uh, in, uh, in all its glory in, uh, in visible light. Uh, so we can see these dark dust lanes uh, threading around it. And if we look at it in the infrared, you see those dust lanes 
are glowing in the infrared. So they match up exactly. We're seeing the light glowing. We're seeing the light in that dust. Let's get rid of that pesky visible light. Uh, and we see uh, just the dust. It looks slightly different. It looks very different to our galaxy. It's got a very quiescent centre. There's not a lot going on right in the centre. We don't really understand why. There's a bright ring of dust around here. We think that's evidence of a few hundred million or a few billion years ago it interacted with another galaxy, maybe swallowed another galaxy. So understanding that, we can make a pretty colour image of it as well. Understanding the properties of that dust allows us to say, well, we can't see our galaxy very well because we're inside it, but we can look at our nearest large neighbour and look at that on a grand scale and say, well, can we match the two? Can we look at our galaxy in huge detail, this galaxy in broader detail and match the two up, and then those very, very, very distant galaxies in even, more de in even less detail, but looking at the global properties as you go back across the universe and seeing them as they were longer ago. And, and yes, we can. You may well have seen an image that looks a lot like this. There's a few of these now. This is the, Hul the Hubble Deep Field from 1995, uh, showing distant galaxies, uh, hundreds of distant galaxies, dotted through this tiny pit of sky. This patch of sky, uh, for the astronomers, is two arc minutes on a side. Uh, to give you a frame of reference, that's the same side as a pinhead held at arm's length. So if you took a pinhead, held it at arm's length, carefully, don't prick yourself, uh, held it at arm's length, that little patch of sky is what you see if you zoomed in. Right? That many galaxies, hundreds of them. Right? Now, there were lots of, Hubble did lots of versions of this. What it's seeing here, if you, there are stories about the most distant objects you see that are from just after the Big Bang and all this kind of stuff. They're looking at the brightest, the most spectacular galaxies that were around billions of years ago in our galaxy. The light has taken billions of years to get to us uh, to be measured by our telescopes. But what Herschel does is it looks at a bigger patch of sky. So this is the patch of sky Herschel can see. This is about the same size as the, the full moon in the sky. Not the full moon at arm's length, that would be hard. The full moon in the sky, uh, about half a degree across. And you can see hundreds, maybe a few thousand blobs in this image. Each of those is a distant galaxy. Say between three and five billion years ago, or billion light years away. So three and five billion years ago, that light was emitted and has been travelling to us ever since. The colour tells you about the, the temperature of the dust. It tells you about the, the distance of the galaxy. Lots of stuff that's encoded in that. And you can start to look at the properties on a larger scale. So if you zoom out even more, this is about uh, eight full moons across on a side. Uh, and you can start to see that sort of there's, there's patches where there's not much, there's patches where there's a lot. You can start to piece together the way galaxies have evolved and changed on enormous scale. So this is what I said. We start off in our galaxy looking at the detail. We can go out to saying, well, we can try and match that using those nearby galaxies to what's been going on on the largest scales. Uh, this is when most of the stars in our galaxies were forming, the peak of star formation. The galaxies here are forming stars 100 to 1,000 times faster than the, star, the, galax the galaxies we see around us and our galaxy is uh, today. So this is where most stars are being formed in our universe, 3 to 5 billion years ago or thereabouts. And so we now have a, a picture of the, the way the universe has, has evolved. We had a Big Bang. There's lots of evidence about the Big Bang and the early universe. I don't really have time. I haven't had time to talk about any of that. That's... The, the regime of the Planck satellite. Uh, what Herschel's done is looked at those first galaxies, well, not the first galaxies, but when the galaxies were really forming stars and merging and combining uh, to form stars at their fastest rate, and how they've evolved over time, and how the universe on its grand scale uh, has evolved over time, and how stars have formed and nebulae have formed. There's even research about comets that I haven't had time uh, to mention. So I'm going to leave it there. I should say thanks to the Herschel team, because I didn't make the vast, vast majority of those images. They were made by... Scientists and researchers, 
Uh, there's obviously hundreds, thousands of people involved in the Hersher project, so this, this wouldn't have been possible uh, without all of them. I am but a mere uh, communicator of the results. Uh, so that's uh, what I'll finish with. So thank you very much. an excellent lecture which was uh, extremely well presented indeed it's uh, it was a, a, a gem of a lecture uh, now Chris soon has to go uh, to go back to uh, Cardiff but uh, we do have time for a few questions if anyone's got any uh, don't all speak at once uh, yes Tony what's the future of infrared observation in space so the question was, what's the future for infrared observations in space? Well, these missions take a long time planning. There are currently plans for the next generation of infrared space telescopes, something called Speaker, which is likely going to be a, J a Japanese-European collaboration. That's due for launch in something like 2035, so that's a way away yet. There are also plans for the next next generation of satellites, so those are, that's you know, for 2050 or something. But that one that's being done at 2035, those of you who are in the audience as undergraduates or whatever, bear in mind that the people who are currently leading the infrared astronomy, they will be retired by the time that launches. And so they will need new people to come and lead those missions. So, uh, so there you go, there's a job opportunity for you. And there's no adverts out yet, but there may be in the future. Uh, yes, Peter. So can I talk about the, the, any of the solar system astronomy Herschel did? One of the big things Herschel can do is it can look at water out in space. So it can look at, because it's above our atmosphere, it doesn't have all that water vapour getting in the way, it's been able to look at the water vapour out in the solar system uh, and uh, look at things like the water in comets. So is the water, could the composition of the water in comets similar to that on Earth? Did it match what came, uh, did the Earth's water originate in comets and so on, things that the Rosetta probe has also been probing uh, as well. And looking at what's going on on Jupiter and Saturn, where some of the, the origins of the water in Jupiter and Saturn system comes from. For example, it showed that the, the Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, puffing material out of its south pole, that's probably seeded stuff in the atmosphere of Saturn, just as Comet Schumacher-Levy 9, for those who remember Comet Schumacher-Levy 9 in 1996 that impacted Jupiter, probably created these, these water clouds in Jupiter. That was some research that came out of, of, uh, of that. There, there is, some of the water in Jupiter's atmosphere is because of that impact, because uh, you see it at the same latitude. So a lot of stuff about water in our solar system. Well, can I, uh, oh, yeah, yes, um, What's the density of those dust clouds you're showing, and how do they become dense enough to form stars? So the question is, what, what's the density of the dust clouds we're showing? Um, the density of dust clouds out in space is very, very, not, or not very, very, not, not dense at all. Uh, the superlatives don't work in that direction. So there's a nice analogy, which is if you take the Orion Nebula, which is the largest region of star formation to us, um, it's, it's 1,000 million millionth as dense as air. Now, the analogy is hard to imagine, but if you took the Wembley Stadium, or the Millennium Stadium, of course, and went and scooped up um, a bit of the Orion Nebula, you'd have the same number of particles of Orion Nebula as you would if you took a pinhead's worth of air. Right, that's how dense it is. So to get the same density, you have to take a pinhead's worth of air, so like a millimetre on a side, and blow it up to the size of the Wembley Stadium uh, to a, a factor of a thousand million million to get the same density. So not very dense at all. What gets them dense is gravity. So you get shock waves that pass through space from exploding stars that tends to 
push everything together, almost like brushes pushing stuff together, and then gravity starts, thing, starts to make things collapse. Uh, and eventually, the only thing that stops gravity is those stars lighting up and pushing everything out again with their, all their light and their, their radiation pressure and their stellar winds and so on. But gravity is the thing that, that drives it. Even at so. such a low density? Even such a low density, because there's a lot of it. The Orion Nebula is very, very, very... It might only be as big as a pinhead blown up to the Wembley Stadium. There's a lot of Wembley Stadiums in the Orion Nebula, if you see what I mean. Um, it's something like 500 light years across or something. So uh, there's a lot of it, and there's a lot of mass there. Um, I mean, these, a, a star, all the, the gas, it's most, gas, stars are mostly made of gas rather than dust, but the, the gases, the sun is a million, million, no, two, important, two, million, 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 million kilograms, which is a lot. Um, so there's a lot of stuff there that gets pushed down. There's a lot of dust out there, even though it's not very dense. Space is big, is the other way of saying that. <laughs> Uh, is there any way of getting around carrying vast amounts of helium into space which then evaporates? So is there any way of getting around carrying vast amounts of helium uh, into space which then evaporates? Well, there, there are technologies, and in fact the speaker mission is probably going to use one of these technologies that means instead of the helium evaporating and venting into space, you recycle it. And it goes around and keeps everything cool. We use those on the ground. Ground-based telescopes use those already. They, they work in a similar way to your, your household fridge that circulates the refrigerant, the Freon, that goes around and keeps everything cool, but using helium instead, typically. That circulates around to keep everything cool. The, the catch is that it takes a lot of power. And actually, it's the, I believe in speaker, it's a lot of the contributions from the, the Japanese side are on that technology to keep everything cool. The one thing speaker will do over Herschel is keep the main mirror cool as well. The dominant thing that affects Herschel and its accuracy is actually the fact that the main mirror is, is a whopping great temperature of about minus 200 degrees C. And that's warm enough to contaminate the images so it gives a constant background glow. Cooling that down to I don't know, 10, degree, 10 Kelvin, so about minus 260 degrees C, will, will eliminate that background. And that's something that speaker will hopefully do. Yes, sir. So, so what happened with the telescope when it stopped? Well, uh, it's too far away from Earth to bring it back. Um, if you brought it back, there was a plan to maybe crash it into the moon. That would have been fun. It would have been the most massive thing to hit the moon. And they could have done it. There was enough fuel on board to do it. Um, it was decided it was too risky. Um, to the moon, I guess. I don't know. It wouldn't have hurt it. Don't worry. Um, instead, what they do is they vent all its fuel. Uh, and they give it a command that says, vent all your fuel fly off in that direction, away from that loop around L2, so you're not going to be hit. I mean, it's a big area, but you're not going to hit anything else. Um, and it's gone into orbit around the sun. And the last command was turn off. It hit the power switch. So you can't turn the thing back on again. Um, it's completely dead. Um, it's in a tumble. It's going around the sun. It's orbiting, you know, in about one, once a year. It's now slightly slow. It's lagged behind or ahead. I don't know which. Um, it'll get back in sync with the Earth about once every 13 years, but it'll get a lot further away. And it will next get close to the Earth in about 300 years. So if the William Herschel Society has a space museum yeah. in the year 2315, you can go and collect it and put it in the William Herschel Space Museum. Uh, uh, without a doubt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. yes.